Whether Jesus accomplished a micro-personal goal or a macro-theological purpose through his crucifixion. What's you going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg, and I'll acknowledge that today's question is quite the mouthful. Although I think when we get into it, we'll find that it really is a very simple proposition. And perhaps one of the biggest problems facing Christianity today, and one of the things that I think provides as good an explanation as any into the divide between what we might describe as traditional or conservative Christianity and progressive Christianity. And that's among the things that I'm wrestling with here at the end of the year 2016 in particular. But first, a couple of quick announcements that probably will be helpful for people who listen to either Walk the Earth or Inappropriate Conversations. I didn't plan at the beginning of the year to take a uh, holiday break here between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but it looks like it's going to be shaping up to be something of that nature. I will record one more Inappropriate Conversations, an episode that I delayed from November. I was going to do it right around the the time of the uh, presidential elections in this country, but some of the things that have happened in and around the election season have thrown me off and pushed me off on my schedule by almost a full month. So one more Inappropriate Conversations left before, say, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. I'll, I'll return at that point. And after this question... One more Walk the Earth question in the year 2016. To be honest, I'll be happy to see 2016 go. It hasn't been a good year in terms of the people that I've found to be inspirational, particularly in the area of music, but not just in the area of music, um, who have come and gone. And also some of the things that I've experienced with my interactions here near the end of the year with fellow Christians, both within my family and outside my family circles. Anybody who's curious about some of the details behind that might listen to Inappropriate Conversations number 190, the most recently released episode in the other podcast that shares the feed with Walk the Earth at www.inappropriateconversations.org. That was called Dear Family Member, and at some length, it provided a pretty good explanation for what I'm thinking and kind of what I'm dealing with. But before I get into this particular question, let me hit a couple of house cleaning notes. I started off with inappropriateconversations.org. If you visit that website, at the very top, there's an about uh, page that's specific to inappropriate conversations. But up there in those upper tabs at the top of the screen, there also is Walk the Earth, is the name of it. But it's basically the about page for Walk the Earth, this podcast. There's also a link to something called Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food. And that might be the best connecting point that I could make for anyone who maybe leaves this question wanting just a little bit more information. I don't think anybody's going to leave this question looking for more scripture, though, because I'm going to do a pretty good job of providing a detailed foundation to the question itself. And I'll restate the question here and go into scripture in just a moment. But first, other ways you can interact with me. Um, I have a uh, 
email address that I set up at the very beginning of podcasting, way before I even had a notion of a spinoff podcast called Walk the Earth. I can be reached there. I see underscore Greg at hotmail.com is one way to interact with me. Twitter is another. Uh, I see underscore Greg is the Twitter handle. I also maintain Facebook pages, two of them, one for Walk the Earth, one for Inappropriate Conversations. And uh, I do interact there as well. And finally, anybody who was curious about dipping a toe into the water of inappropriate conversations but didn't uh, think that it made sense to go all the way back to the beginning, even though every one of those podcasts is available at the website, they're also available on SoundCloud. My SoundCloud page is IC underscore Greg, and I provided some clips, usually short clips, to every show that I've recorded. Working my way up from the first one, number one, to uh, probably just over a 100 now, so I've got a little bit further to go. But I'm kind of working my way through the process of providing some sort of excerpt, some sort of hint of the content of the oldest Inappropriate Conversations podcasts. But this one's Walk the Earth. And again, like I said when I started, the question we're facing today, or the question I'm facing today, is a mouthful. Whether Jesus accomplished a micro-personal goal or a macro-theological purpose through his crucifixion. In other words... What exactly did the crucifixion do? And if it seems odd to be looking at this particular question, as we get closer and closer to Christmas on the annual calendar of holiday celebrations in the Western world, as opposed to hanging on to it and saving it for something a little bit closer to Easter, or at least Ash Wednesday, the the reality is, this is the thought that is on my mind. Because in the United States in particular, here in the year 2016, we are seeing something of a pretty hard-line divide between what it might mean to be a so-called progressive Christian and a so-called traditional-slash-conservative Christian. There's a liberal versus conservative divide, for want of a better word. And anybody who's paid much attention to what I've done in podcast form will know I absolutely and flatly reject all of this sort of liberal versus conservative false dichotomy. I'm not saying that examples can't be found to point to something that would be a left versus right spectrum. I'm not saying that there's absolutely nothing there. I'm just saying it doesn't apply to me. And therefore, I'm sitting in a unique position to evaluate a lot of theological perspectives. I've uh, studied the Bible at a collegiate level. Uh, I've been a lifelong reader slash researcher, for want of a better word. And my faith has remained consistently strong through a number of things which have happened in recent years, which for a lot of people might have thrown them completely off course. So I feel like this is a question that I can answer. And in this case, unlike a lot of the other walk the earth queries, for want of a better word, I'm actually looking at this from the perspective of thinking that I've got the answer right from the start. I've maintained a consistent worldview, I suppose, on this matter. And maybe it's the nature of the political climate we're in and how that's infected the church to one degree or another. Maybe it's time for me to be just a little bit confrontational. So I'm asking the question, and perhaps the question is a bit of a setup. It's a bit of a straw man. But for anybody who doesn't find that to be the obvious case, just from the scripture reading alone, I will explain my point of view and how it's guided me from leaving a denomination, not just a church, and going elsewhere, and how I realize by kind of looking in the mirror here in the month of November 2016 that had I not taken this path, I easily could have left 
the Christian church as an organized religious entity completely this year. Not because of the result of any one political election, not because of anything that's happened in the media, but simply because I would have perceived, I think, perhaps accurately, that there would be no longer a welcome place for me within the church. I'm not going to look at that question in November, though. That might be the question for December's Walk the Earth. But first, Scripture. To me, the best way to manage the ultimate pushback and challenge that often happens when a scriptural interpretation is provided is to look at as many of the different accounts as possible. So in this case, I'm going to look at several stories, several gospel accounts of the crucifixion and um, do it from all four of the gospels and do it in a way that doesn't necessarily overlap and repeat. Now, there is a great deal of repetition, especially in the first three gospels. But I'm intentionally going to pick um, parts of the story through contiguous scripture, through contiguous verses, but starting and stopping in such a way that there's a minimal amount of repetition. And I'm also not going to break in the way I read this as I jump from one gospel writer to the other. So what I'll do at first is simply introduce the verses that I'm going to share and then run through them. Matthew 27, verses 27 to 30. Mark 15, verses 21 and 22. Luke 23, verses 32 to 43, and ending with John 19, verses 25 to 37. The verses uh, are in the order that they appear in the New Testament as the canon was put together, but I do intend to end with John for a reason, and we'll get there in the answer to the question today. But first, the Gospel, Accounts of the Crucifixion. Then Pilate's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's palace, and the whole company gathered around him. They stripped off his clothes and put a scarlet robe on him. Then they made a crown out of thorny branches and placed it on his head and put a stick in his right hand. Then they knelt before him and made fun of him. Long live the king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the stick and hit him over the head. When they had finished making fun of him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. On the way, they met a man named Simon, who was coming into the city from the country, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was from Cyrene, and was the father of Alexander and Rufus. They took Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Two other men, both of them criminals, were also led out to be put to death with Jesus. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there. And the two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Forgive them, Father. They do not know what they're doing. They divided his clothes among themselves by throwing dice. The people stood there and watched while the Jewish leaders made fun of him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah whom God has chosen. The soldiers also made fun of him. They came up to him and offered him cheap wine and said, Save yourself if you are the king of the Jews. Above him were written these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other one, however, rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God? You receive the same sentence he did. Ours, however, is only right, because we are getting what we deserve for what we did. But he has done no wrong. He then said to Jesus, Remember me, Jesus, when you come as king. 
Jesus said to him, I promise you that today you will be in paradise with me. Standing close to Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there. So he said to his mother, He is your son. Then he said to the disciple, She is your mother. From that time the disciple took her to live in his home. Jesus knew that by now everything had been completed, and in order to make the scripture come true, he said, I am thirsty. A bowl was there full of cheap wine, so a sponge was soaked in the wine, put on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted up to his lips. Jesus drank the wine and said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jewish authorities asked Pilate to allow them to break the legs of the men who had been crucified and to take down the bodies from the crosses. They requested this because it was Friday, and they did not want the bodies to stay on the crosses on the Sabbath, since the coming Sabbath was especially holy. So the soldiers went and broke the legs of the first man and then the other man who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, plunged his spear into Jesus' side, and at once blood and water poured out. The one who saw this happen has spoken of it, so that you may believe. What he said is true, and he knows that he speaks the truth. This was done to make the scripture come true. Not one of his bones will be broken. And there is another scripture that says, People will look at him whom they pierced. This from the Good News Translation covering four different gospel perspectives, telling one single story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And there are many things in here that I think are interesting, and I may maybe I'll work it backward to forward, and then use this particular story to help answer my question. First, why the specific mention of blood and water flowing from the, uh, the stab wound when the soldier pierced Jesus aside with with his spear. I think the reason for that is to account for the fact that Jesus had actually been dead and hanging on the cross for quite some time. Enough time that there had been some separation between blood and plasma coming from this particular wound. That's a very typical interpretation of this passage. And it does a couple of things. First, from a Christian perspective, if I, if I take a sort of a biased partisan apologetic point of view, it certainly removes any question about whether or not Jesus could have survived the experience. Wasn't that unusual, as a matter of fact, for a dead person to remain hanging from the cross for quite some time as a result of a crucifixion? And part of the reason for breaking the legs of, in this case, the other two people, the thieves on the cross, was that crucifixion as a death is most notably a death by asphyxiation. The notion is that once you become... Uh, exhausted enough that you are no longer capable of pushing off on the nail holding your foot or ankle to the cross and using your arm muscles enough to lift your body up to where your diaphragm is not crunched against your lungs and you can take in breath. Once that process of almost treading water while being aloft in the air, once you become too exhausted for that to work, then a common cause of death in crucifixion is Asphyxiation. You simply cannot summon the strength to put more air into your lungs. And by breaking the legs of somebody who's hanging on a cross, that completely eliminates any prospect of somebody, quote-unquote, coming up for air. 
So that's sort of the reason for that story. And, and it does create a setting by which, uh, both in John's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel in this case, the story is told of Jesus and interacting while hanging on the cross with the other two people being crucified at the same time. Them being crucified uh, through a more of a due process, for want of a better word, to use a, a modern anachronistic term. They were actually formally arrested, convicted, and uh, and sentenced, as opposed to the railroad effect of, of the gospel accounts of Jesus's path from arrest to crucifixion being much shorter and perhaps of dubious legal standing. So before that in the story, you have Simon, the Cyrene, asked to carry the cross for Jesus. And uh, before that, it started off with one of several accounts of soldiers and Jewish leaders mocking Jesus and insinuating or even outright suggesting that he could not be the Messiah because if he was the Messiah, he would save himself. So Jesus did not save himself. And I think presumably the story is told, the gospel accounts in their totality. And especially if you look at it from the perspective of the Messiah being a reference to fulfilled scripture in the Old Testament too, all of this telling a single story of, of Jesus and who he was, there's very little doubt in my mind that Jesus could have done what they were mockingly suggesting that he do. He could have called an end to the situation. He could have shut it down. He could have perhaps on some level literally leapt off the cross and asserted some sort of earthly authority. Somebody who performed miracles, miraculous healings, among other things, certainly perhaps would have had the power, if you accept the gospel accounts from a Christian worldview, would have had the power to exercise the authority that he was being uh, basically mocked for. <laughs> and so choosing not to do so doesn't mean that he was unable it means more that he was unwilling. And I think that's what's going to connect me to the question that I'm trying to explore today on Walk the Earth. If Jesus was unwilling to call off his crucifixion, if there was some greater purpose in seeing the crucifixion through, what was that purpose? Was it that he was about to change everything, including the course of recorded human history, to use the phrase I've often heard, in churches, as a matter of fact, or were Jesus' goals much more subtle than that? Because that really is where I find myself at disagreements with what we might describe as conservative Christianity today, and why I'm going to assert that this difference of opinion between a personal goal and a larger theological goal puts me on the right side of Scripture, and many of these people on the wrong side of Scripture. This is one of the topics that's covered in the article that's posted at the very top menu bar at inappropriateconversations.org, Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food. Many people have quoted to me, including people who are you know, pastors, religiously educated, who somehow miss what I'm trying to explore here, that I'm answering a bigger question than perhaps they're willing to even consider. They'll quote the, the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about how he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And they somehow can't connect the dots between what happens at the very end of John's gospel, where Jesus talks about him fulfilling his mission, that what he set out to do had been accomplished. To quote John again, just to get the Good News Translation's words out there in place, Jesus essentially, after the point in time where he had um, made sure that his mother was taken care of, realized 
again, hanging on the cross, uh, not long after interacting with the thieves, says that he knew that everything had been completed. Everything had been accomplished. And in order to make scripture come true, he said, I am thirsty. He drank that last bit of cheap wine, then said, Tetelestai, it is completed, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So if Jesus is basically saying, mission accomplish, mic drop, peace out, at this point in the story, what was that mission? Well, let me give you the answer right up front. I believe that Jesus, through his crucifixion and later resurrection, made a complete change in the way theism functions. That no longer was this going to be about God and a set of chosen people. That in the book of Galatians, Paul, the letter writer, the first major theologian, made it very clear that even in the original Old Testament law, even in the Torah, that God wasn't talking about Abraham's seeds as being many, many things, plural. He was referring to Abraham's seed, singular, as in the Messiah. And for Jesus to be Abraham's seed, then Jesus actually had the authority to fulfill all of those Old Testament prophecies. And essentially, Jesus was saying, yes, there used to be a system whereby a nation of people, whether it be a set of judges or later kings or even some other concept of government, a nation of people would be made right collectively in their relationship with God. And the chief way you'd know the people were right with God to make this collective notion of God's relationship with a group of people work was their ability to follow 600 plus rules as carefully as possible, even though perhaps you know, following those rules perfectly is, could be better described as humanly impossible. But Jesus basically said, that's gone now. That you no longer have a high priest you can go to who will make a sacrifice and cover for anything you've done wrong. Those days are over. That you need to pick up your cross and follow me. Any one of you who wants to be with me and part of this kingdom has an obligation individually to do. Now, I've spoken about this before in inappropriate conversations. I do believe that it is one of the episodes that I've reached when it comes to putting a SoundCloud clip up there where people could listen to just, in this case, just the sermon slash message of that episode from 2012, Inappropriate Conversations 97. Uh, Any one of us is not all of us was my working title, but I, I think I probably called it something different when I posted it online. It was August 2012 from the monthly menu, Inappropriate Conversations 97. goes into a great deal of detail with a great deal of scripture about why one of the things that Jesus accomplished was flipping the script completely and saying this is no longer about you picking the right priest, the priest doing the right stuff for you, the priest prays to the saints who pray to Jesus, who prays to God the Father, and you're, you're covered through this hierarchy of sorts. Jesus basically said, no, 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 everything's different now. This between you and me. Even to the extent of saying, hey, if that's too much for you, if you can't bear that burden, if you're too ashamed of me to pick up your cross and follow, then there's nothing that that priest can do to save you. Nothing a pope can do to save you. Nothing that a saint or a long-lost loved one who presumably has died and gone to heaven can do to save you. It's you and it's me. He turned to the thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a personal relationship. 
I hear some progressive Christians on the left side of the political spectrum talk about um, the notion of a personal relationship with God not being biblical or not sufficiently biblical for their taste. I disagree. I think in Mark chapters 8 and 9, Jesus establishes this personal relationship. And then later, in all the Gospels, talks about it, making that final shift, accomplishing that goal. But this is a micro-theological purpose. This is Jesus saying through this moment of crucifixion and what's going to come after, a resurrection, an ascension into heaven, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all that other sort of stuff. All of that is my way of saying that law was nice for a time, but now it's gone. Read the book of Galatians. If you got a short attention span, just read chapter 3. Basically, that's what it says in a heartbeat, that Jesus accomplished something as big as turning the relationship of man and God into something completely different that perhaps in its own unique way had never existed before in the history of religion. That might be a slight overstatement, but it's an overstatement I'm willing to live with, particularly in light of the fact that I find myself consistently dealing with Christians who cannot accept what seems to me an obvious biblical theological fact. Now, I know I've got some listeners Use of the word fact with biblical is going to throw them completely off. Just bear with me, because I'm dealing with the kind of people who would say that regardless of the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law and gave us a, gave us a faith and, and uh, sent the Holy Spirit and all that other sort of stuff, that we are still very, very strongly required through some legal kind of rule, through some theological legal rule to make sure that there's a group of us who are in and a group of them who are out, and the out group must be shunned. So anybody who has the same inclusive attitude that I've got, that the church I walked to has, and that the church I walked away from did not have, anyone who wants to be inclusive, anyone who thinks that we need to be worshiping side by side with gay and lesbian couples who may or may not have become married and may or may not have adopted kids, May or may or may not have had kids from another another marriage who are starting a family that we need to support that. We need to show the world that we are Christians by our love, by working side by side and walking hand in hand with these people. That's your dividing line right there. If you believe that Jesus changed everything and that the law has been fulfilled, you don't have a half dozen verses, most of them coming from the book of Leviticus, that tell you that it's really important that we make God happy by collectively rising up and stripping the rights away from a set of people, especially a set of people who are a a minority if you just tally up the numbers and say, well, are there more of this group than there are of that group? So I may be referring to concepts like biblical truth. And that might throw, again, some people who are more liberal than I am off track. Let's keep our eye on the question that we're answering, though. The question we're answering is, if there's a dividing line, the dividing line is probably, what does it mean to say Jesus accomplished something on the cross? I say he accomplished eliminating this notion of an in-group and an out-group. He accomplished replacing the law with two commandments— Love God with all your heart and strength and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And even if you are trying to obey obey as many of those laws as possible, because many of those Old Testament laws are actually fairly good advice and a a nice, uh, safe way to live your life, if you do that without love, then Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
basically goes on and on and on about how, without love, all of that is meaningless. We know this. We as a collective body of Christ, cutting across multiple denominations, in multiple countries, in speaking different languages, say these same words. Without love, you're a clanging gong, you're a banging cymbal, you're nothing without love. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Paul, in establishing a Christian theology, echoed. This is completely consistent with the writer of the Apocalypse in the book of Revelations. Somehow we miss it, though. We've lost that storyline completely. Because as I've worded it in the past, there are a lot of Christians out there who are more in love with the law than they are with the Lord. So what do we do with those folks? I think one of the ways we can address that particular set of people is to help them face and perhaps answer today's question. Whether Jesus accomplished a micro-personal goal rather than a macro-theological purpose through his crucifixion. Jesus said, I mean, we, we heard the words from, in this case, the Good News translation. He said, hey, it's finished. I have accomplished and completed what I set out to do. Well, what was it he set out to do? If Jesus wasn't trying to change the entire relationship with God, foreshadowed really well in Mark chapter 8, as a matter of fact, perhaps he just wanted to wear a scarlet robe. Hey, mission accomplished. Or maybe he needed to give Simon, visiting from out of town, a sense of purpose and and the ability to contribute meaningfully to the the larger overall narrative that being from Cyrene, he may not have noticed. Maybe Jesus only came to put one thief in his place and tell another thief he was forgiven. Mission accomplished. I promise you that today you will be in paradise with me. Is that all Jesus was trying to do? Was save, uh, provide some eternal salvation to one of the two thieves who shared the moment of crucifixion with him. To me, the best argument, if you wanted to go with a micro purpose rather than a macro purpose for Jesus saying it's accomplished, is maybe Jesus was only trying to make sure that no matter the circumstances of him leaving this earth, whether it be ascension or death and resurrection or some stage along the way in that continuum, he just needed to make sure that his mom, the widow Mary, was taken care of. John chapter 19 gives us this account of Jesus looking at his mother and looking at the disciple he loved, is the way John describes it, and saying to Mary, his mother, this is your son, and saying to that disciple, this is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her to live in his home. And then Jesus said, hey, it's finished. I've done everything I set out to do. Kind of a strange way to manage sort of an assisted living retirement home situation. There's got to be better ways of doing it than that. But who am I to judge? I guess I am judging. And I'll confess to that just a little bit. Because for somebody who has enough of a passionate perspective about Christianity, that they would seek to rebuke and correct somebody who believes that Jesus accomplished so much more on the cross than just finding a retirement situation for his mother now that he was gone. Yeah, I think that needs to be called out. I think that opinion does need to be judged. And I don't want to diminish the things that Jesus got done in the seven last words of Christ, as they're called. One of my favorite works of Haydn is 
the seven last words of Christ. Classical and choral music written around these particular sayings, uh, including, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And I am thirsty and it is finished. These seven last words of Christ accomplished a great deal, managed to address the people who were mocking him by not speaking to them, not acknowledging them, but speaking to someone else who was also being crucified at the same time. I imagine this wasn't a free-flowing conversation. It probably was uh, a pained speech spoken between gasps for air, but nevertheless a conversation where one thief, and thereby anyone else acting like him, was put in his place, and another person was assured of his salvation. I don't want to diminish that accomplishment. And I don't don't want to diminish the accomplishment of Mary, the mother of Jesus, having answers to the things which might have been a distracting personal concern for her. What will become of me now that my only son, or that this particular son, is dead? Well, he answered that question. But if you believe for one moment, as a quote-unquote Bible-believing Christian, that these are the things Jesus meant when he said, it is finished, this set of you know, small moments in an otherwise much, much bigger narrative can be described with words like accomplished and completed. Well, I've got a real problem with that. I've got an abiding faith through prayerfully reading scripture throughout all of these decades that what happened on the cross was much, much bigger. And that I no longer now have to worry, not just about which day I worship or what I eat or what I wear, I also don't have to worry about any impact to my eternal salvation if somebody falls in love with somebody that the church has traditionally said they ought not be allowed to fall in love with. Jesus didn't put any stipulations or exceptions on it. Love God, love your neighbor. And if you act through that, if that's the paradigm through which you interact with the world, you're going to be in a place where any mistake you've made, whether in your execution of that love, or in a moment of, of anger or disillusionment, or even just a flat-out misinterpretation of Scripture, if you are acting out of love, you are going to be safe and covered. It won't help you that you've got some sort of loophole or stipulation or some legalistic you know, sort of bylaw that you're going to hang on to. You won't be able to blame the pastor or the preacher or the theological professor, the, the professor at the theological school, or the president of the United States, or anybody else you want to blame, if you've got this one wrong. Because Jesus told us, love one another. That's how you will know I am your disciples. Because you love one another. If we don't obey that, we got nothing. And I suspect that if we do obey that, it'll be so much easier for those who seem to struggle with my interpretation of the meaning of crucifixion, death, resurrection, ascension, all that sort of stuff. It'd be so much easier for them because instead of reading the Bible as if it's been given to us as a set of rules, that if any one person breaks those rules, then as a collective nation of believers, the right hand of God might come down and smite us. I mean, that's that's the Jerry Falwell Sr. talk uh, at 9-11, that, that, that was all judgment against us because of this, that, or the other thing. And we hear this same irresponsible, shoddy theology being expressed by his son now running um, his legacy, or by Franklin Graham now tarnishing the legacy of Billy Graham. And 
others who get things so far theologically wrong because they forget the commandment to love first and trust the Lord to shake out all the rest later. When Jesus said it is finished, he was talking in the big picture. Lots of things, maybe more than we'll ever know, were accomplished at that moment, including who's going to take care of mom, what are the fate of these two thieves who were crucified with Jesus, and much, much more. But to focus on that little stuff and dismiss the big picture, to say that Jesus somehow, well, he fulfilled the dietary restrictions and the clothing restrictions, but he didn't do anything about this other this other stuff, that I can't use love as a guide to tell me whether or not I should be okay with somebody who's not me and a relationship that doesn't involve me being in that relationship. This is pretty simple. You look at this through the lens of love, and there suddenly becomes a heck of a lot of things that we need to do and that we recognize we need to do them and we need to do them better. Most of them involving people who are poor, people who are disabled, people who are marginalized, people who are in their moment of greatest need. And then we're going to notice that there's a heck of a lot of things which may or may not matter. And when the Holy Spirit calls us to our attention, we'll respond. And then there's a heck of a lot of stuff that has nothing whatsoever to do with us. And if you're clinging to that other part, the part that doesn't matter, because you think you're still part of the Hebrew people roaming the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, then I think you're missing something. You're missing this entire Jesus thing. And for me... Uh, somebody who might be accused or has been accused in the past of being somehow liberal or progressive or wayward or lost or backsliding. I got a much bigger respect, a much bigger esteem, and I would say a much bigger understanding of what Jesus was accomplishing when he said, it is accomplished. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we talk all the time about surrendering to your authority. That if you aren't Lord of all, then maybe you're not Lord at all in the lives of those people. Well, here I am, Jesus, looking at what you've done, both in this earthly walk and since, which is not the topic today, so I won't go into it. But I look at what you did as something much, much bigger and I fear, Lord, that I'm interacting on a regular basis with a lot of Christians who look at what you did as something significantly smaller. I'm going to need your help, Jesus, dealing with that. This is a group of people that is probably the majority, maybe, maybe even a significant majority. I'm being told by friends and family members who fall into that other point of view that I'm wrong or mistaken or misguided, and I believe some of them might even view me as dangerous. I've come to realize, Jesus, that that puts me in fairly good company throughout history, going all the way back to your walk on this earth. So I thank you, Lord, for leading me, years ago, as and when you did, to leave the situation I was in, an unhealthy church, in a denomination that I still esteem but that I fear has lost its way, to a church home that in these moments of crisis, for me personally, and perhaps even for the, for the world, the Christian world anyway, that I've got a better set of people surrounding me, uh, people that I can speak with, people that I can interact with, people who I think understand what you meant when you said, love one another. That's how we'll know 
who the true disciples are. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that I can continue to use your words, your commands, as a guiding light and a guiding principle. Recognizing that it means a lot more than just one moment in time, 2,000 years ago, as you interacted with thieves on a cross and mothers and disciples on the ground. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next on Walk the Earth, whether following Jesus collectively is still possible, what 80% of evangelical Christians no longer think character is all that matters in leadership decisions. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.